Greetings, everyone. Hardly a day goes by but that we are kept abreast of events developing in the Persian Gulf. Of course, the additional infusion of large increments of American military personnel has been announced continuously for the past week, and the response by Saddam Hussein bringing the total number of his armed forces to near the 700,000 level, apparently, in and around the tiny Kuwait and the border with Saudi Arabia. The question I have is, does God know what's going on? I know CNN does. I know that Peter Jennings was over there interviewing Saddam Hussein. I know that the American media have literally hundreds of people over there. A soldier can hardly take a shower or chew a bite of turkey without having a camera and a microphone in front of him. For the last week, during the entire week, some of the major networks were featuring families and the young service personnel, male and female, being able to actually see and to hear one another on simultaneous hookups so that they could cry. It was all very moving. Here are youngsters over there 10,000 miles away and their own parents or their wives and in several cases Good Morning America featured young brides, young women, mothers who had given birth to children after their fathers had left. And here were the daddies over in the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabian desert actually seeing their little progeny for the very first time. It was all very moving. It brought a tear to your eye. We know that a timetable is being worked out and that, of course, we are dragging our feet, that is, we the United States, not we the Church, waiting for the Soviet Union to make a move with regard to underwriting a UN resolution authorizing the use of force. We've also heard that several congressmen out in the state of California have actually gone to suit in federal court to try to sue the federal government to make sure that George Bush goes to the Congress to get permission to launch a war. It's a strange new world we live in, isn't it? Where the media have, first of all, practically identified the exact size, location, numbers of the units and where they are, have told exactly how many troops are over there, told me the other day, I doubt if Saddam Hussein knew it until then, but he watches the same telecast I do, CNN, uh, that the leader of all of the U.S. forces at sea was aboard a particular ship docked in a particular port in Bahrain and showed exactly where it was. Well, that was all very interesting. Now, in the meantime, the media has shown us how the Apache helicopter doesn't work, that they've actually put duct tape over some of the rotor blades that many of the parts just fall off of it, that the actual cannon in the nose shakes the rivets and the circuit breakers so badly they pop and the gun won't track any further, and that after a, a flight of about three to four hours, many of them tend to break down. That was interesting information that I'm sure Saddam Hussein could make good use of. When you listen to what people say about the Middle Eastern crisis, it's fascinating seems like all of the televangelists have used it as a grab bag to foster all sorts of hysterical chicken little theories. U.S. News and World Report went to several of them, quoted from Dr. Billy Graham, from Pat Robertson and his 700 Club, from a number of others, including a former Ambassador College graduate who has got very good credentials in one of the Eastern Universities. I forget where he is now. He used to be at William & Mary. Uh, Mr. James Tabor, with whom we're in frequent correspondence and attends our festivals of tabernacles every year. And he also was quoted. Pat Robertson was quoted in that article in the United States News and World Report about the meaning of the events in a Persian Gulf and especially the military buildup and the potential of an attack by Saddam Hussein against Israel as being the signal to bring about the Battle of Armageddon, saying that this is the time when, quote, from this article, the nations of the world will come against Israel, end quote. Well, I don't know of any scripture that says the nations of the world, meaning the Uruguayan army, uh, or people all over the Western Hemisphere are going to go against Israel, but that's what the man said in quotations in the article in the USNWR. Is Armageddon about to occur? What I want to do today is to give you a little bit of an outline of a new book that I'm working on. Now, the book could become that thick if I let it, and it would take me seven years to write it, because it is an exposition of the book of Revelation. It is going to have to be much shorter than that. My father, about 30-some years ago, wrote a little pocket-sized booklet called The Key to the Book of Revelation. I may have a title that is similar to that. 
I'll think that through as I keep working on the book. But is Armageddon about to occur? In the book of Revelation, in the 16th chapter, we read this, beginning in the 12th verse. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. You all know the river Euphrates runs through the nation of Iraq, or Iraq if you prefer. And the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, as it should read, or devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, so it's a global conflict that is triggered, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Interesting language now in verse 15 of how Christ interjects, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Why would he put a precautionary statement right in the middle of this weird, bizarre, surrealistic, sci-fi kind of a vision seen by John of frogs, of all things, coming out of the mouth of a dragon. How ghastly and hideous that would be to see in a technicolor dream. A frog coming out of the mouth of the beast, and the beast that he saw was not a human being that we know is going to eventually be a military dictator over ten nations wearing a peaked cap with scrambled eggs on it and epaulets of a general of the armies. And the false prophet, and the false prophet isn't going to be wearing clerical robes and a sort of a funny-looking hat on his head or a little beanie parading around in white in a little mobile with bulletproof glass. No, what he saw was something quite different from what we believe this may mean. And then explains that they are demonic spirits that actually are capable of working miracles, which go out and either possess, or I take it heavily influence, kings, premiers, presidents, prime ministers, leaders of the earth that causes them to come to battle of what is called the great day of God Almighty. Now after that is this sudden parenthetical precautionary statement, Behold, I come as a thief. Now Christ said several times, reported by John and Luke and Mark in his famous Olivet Prophecy, that of that day and that hour knows no man, no, not the Son, but the Father only. It has been the task of eschatologists and would-be evangelists to try to decipher all sorts of interesting scenarios. I don't know how many graphs and charts I've seen. Some of them you can unroll them, they'll fall all the way down to the floor to your feet, that have got lines drawn on them and all sorts of dates and epochs and eras and dispensations and periods of time. There's a current argument over whether or not we're nearing the end of the 6,000 years allotted to man. Some people are absolutely determined that there are only exactly 7,000 years and that they can come to know exactly when was creation. They can know very close to the end of the 6,000 years when the millennium is to begin. And for decades and centuries, people have wanted to figure out in spite of everything that Christ said, that you cannot know the day and the hour. They wanted to know at least the month. They will admit to you out of their pulpits, well, we can't know the day and the hour, but it doesn't say we can't know the week, and it doesn't say we can't know the month or the season or the general time of the year. Well, why is Christ saying here, behold, I come as a thief? When time and again he said, the thief, the successful burglar, breaks into your home when you least expect it. The average person is not barricaded in his living room with a shotgun across his lap and a 9mm at full cock with three signs all the way to the front door, thieves keep out, and waiting for the thief to walk in and blow him away. The average person comes home or awakens in the morning and looks around and realizes their home has been ransacked. The reason he puts this is people are going to be tempted to try to tell you and to tell others, as Paul very plainly said in 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, they will say, lo here or lo there, but don't believe it because that day will not come except a great falling away occurs first. And then he talked about the abomination of desolation and the great false prophet who stands in the holy place claiming that he is God. That hasn't happened yet, has it? 
Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches. That's the name of our once-in-a-while magazine, 20th Century Watch. Luke 21, 36, Watch you, therefore, and pray always that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass. Luke 21 is the parallel account of the Olivet Prophecy. All these things that shall come to pass are the things detailed in the Olivet Prophecy, as they are in Matthew 24, false Christs, wars and rumors of wars, global drought, global famine, and disease epidemics, a martyrdom of saints, great earthquakes, typhoons, the waves roaring and men's hearts failing them for fear, and eventually, as he said, then shall be a time of trouble such as was not from the beginning of the world of this time, no nor ever indeed shall be, and except those days should be shortened, that's Matthew 24, 21 and 2, there should no flesh be saved alive. I have asserted for my 35 years in radio and television ministry that Christ dated, in quotes, that prophecy by saying the events will take place during a time when the potential of human extermination would finally be very real. We really didn't enter that time in 1945 because the United States had only those two bombs and they expended them both in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But shortly thereafter, by about 1950, when the Soviet Union had already exploded a hydrogen bomb, the world was indeed stockpiling enough hydrogen and atomic bombs of various types and various kiloton yields that the annihilation of the human race became a distinct possibility. Now they say there are three or more methods by which humanity could be exterminated from the face of the earth. So we are living in a time where Matthew 24, the Olivet Prophecy, and these prophecies of the book of Revelation could begin to take place. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments. Now that's, talk, that's talking about spiritual clothing. It's talking about not only someone who is watching world news, but watching in the sense of a mother whose boy is about four hours late, or whose daughter is not there yet, and it's 3 a.m., and they expected her at 11. And they're looking out the window, and they're praying, and they're deeply concerned, and they're distraught because they're watching with a great deal of alarm and trepidation. This word watching doesn't mean just looking. It means more than just looking. It means a spiritual watch. It means someone who is on his knees, someone who is converted, someone who is growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, someone who knows his Bible, someone who is a part of God's work of a watchman, the work of the watchman that is explained in Ezekiel 33 and elsewhere. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, stays close to God, and is spiritually clothed, lest he walk naked, spiritual nakedness, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Interesting, isn't it, in the context? Armageddon isn't even mentioned yet. The evil spirits gather the kings of the earth. The river Euphrates is dried up to prepare the way of the kings of the east and they're gathered to a place called Armageddon, but right here is this lengthy caution. Be careful, because it's going to happen when you least expect it, like a thief in the middle of the night. Is Armageddon about to occur? If you have a piece of paper, about yay big, you might have a little fun by at the top of it putting number one through seven and circling each. At number seven, Draw a little line down here and write one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And at number seven, draw a little line and write down here one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I'll show you as we go along what I mean by that. Revelation, the first chapter. Of course, men at some time in history put the words of St. John the Divine after the words which merely are the, the definite article. Apocalypsis, which is the apocalypse or the revelation. John was not divine. God is divine. No man has ever achieved divinity. Men, including those who were the translators for the Anglican Church, decided to put the words John the Divine. You can actually scratch those out if you'd like, because they're not in the original inspired text at all, as it proves in chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
not of John the divine, but of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants those things or things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel and his servant John. I'm going to take quite a bit of time in the booklet to go back and show that the book of Revelation, though it is a book of puzzling, clouded, concealed, strange visions, and many-headed, many-horned beasts, and things as we saw like weird things of a frog coming out of the mouth of a dragon, that actually it is a book which is meant to be understood, which is meant to be revealed, and is meant to be made plain to our understanding. But it is to show unto who? His servants. Now we could write a book about who are his servants. How do you get to be his servant? I had an interesting conversation with a neighbor of mine recently when he asked me a rather involved question about sin and death and what happens when you die. And when I finished explaining it, he said, well, yes, but that's just your interpretation. Of course, that's a standard answer in the world, isn't it? Because to many people in the world, the Bible, and especially the book of Revelation, is just like you go down and you buy a puzzle down at the toy store and it's already taken apart. You shake the box and there are thousands of pieces in every conceivable jumbled chaotic disarray. And you open the box and you take a piece and you look at it and you say, oh, I know what that is. I know where that belongs. Well, now that's not possible, is it? So most people start with the corners, don't they? And then they, of course, pieces all fit almost alike. But they look at the colors and they start working gradually around. But very few people just grab a piece out of the middle of the puzzle and say, I know exactly where that fits. But that's what they do with the Bible, with the book of Revelation. It seems to be a catch-all for people to pick a scripture here and a scripture there and say, I know what that means. As we will see, Pat Robertson and many other people have been doing and are being quoted in national magazines as believing this current standoff, this current threat of war in the Gulf might lead directly to the Battle of Armageddon. Let's see if that is so. Now we see in verse 2 that John bear record of three things, the Word of God, and here and there that is stated in this book, of the testimony, and that is like the witness, isn't it? If you go up to a witness stand in a trial and you give testimony. It's merely the witness or the declaration, declamation, the statements of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Now, John wrote not in the order in which the events are to occur, but John wrote in the order in which he saw. Verse 3, Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written therein. There are admonitions and there are corrections and there are commands given in it, for the time is at hand. I'm going to skip ahead to the end of the book, to the 22nd chapter, and notice something. Talking of the holy city, blessed are those that do his commandments, verse 14, that they may have a right to the tree of life, and they enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. In verse 18, I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God will add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. He which testifies these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. John echoes, even so, Lord Jesus, come, or come, Lord Jesus, and then a salutation to the churches, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. It is like there is a curse pronounced over the book of Revelation of those who would seek to take their ideas and insert their thoughts somehow in this book to make interpolations or extractions or extrapolations or minimizations or exaggerations or in some way to interpret. Well, I told my neighbor in response to his rather mild accusation, which was all in good humor, no, it's not. No, it's not my interpretation. I don't have such a thing as an interpretation. Well, he snorted, of course you do. 
You're just saying you don't. Well, let me give you an example. It says, and I quote in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. How do you interpret that? Well, he hemmed and hawed around a little bit. I said, well, let me tell you how Billy Graham interprets it. The wages of sin is eternal life in hellfire, frying like a piece of bacon in an inch of white-hot grease, never quite burning up, just spitting, popping, sizzling, screaming in agony for billions of aeons because you had the misfortune of being born a little Chinese girl whose father and mother worshipped Buddha, and you died of starvation at age six months. But you were never a Christian, never heard the name of Christ, so you go to hell. What is the interpretation of Oral Roberts, of all of the mainstream fundamentalist churches? The Bible says very clearly, the wages of sin is death. Now to me, death, D-E-A-T-H, you go down to the coroner and you ask him, what's death? You go to the clinic, what is death? Well, we can get into arguments about the law, people that have the plug pulled that are either brain dead or, or somebody that says they're going to donate their organ. I did not fill out that part to my driver's license because I want to make sure they don't make a mistake. It seems to me like if people are looking for an organ, they're looking for one that's still alive and healthy. And if I'm lying there and they look at my driver's license and say, hey, he's a donor, they may be in a little bit too much of a hurry and I may, not, I may not be ready for them to take my liver yet, see. so. And you've heard of some of these arguments where people say, well, uh, clinically or technically, according to the legal definition of the term death, there's a difference between the time when your heart stops or you stop breathing or your brain dies. And of course, we've seen students in college, we've suspected of being brain dead a long time ago. But uh, not to be facetious all the time about that, dead is dead. And when the coroner says and puts the toe, you know, the, the tag on the toe and slams the door in the cold storage, uh, it's obviously he's dead. No brain waves, no respiratory function, no pulse, no beating of the heart. Dead is dead. I said, I don't interpret that. It means exactly to me what it says. But it doesn't mean that to Dr. Billy Graham. Now, you're telling me I'm interpreting? If I read the newspaper, such and such happened, uh, Kuwait was attacked. Now, I might not believe it at first, but by the time I hear every news media and every other newspaper and all the news magazines and the president and everybody else saying Kuwait was attacked, and then by the time I see pictures of tanks running into Kuwait, I believe it. I didn't interpret the statement, Kuwait was attacked. I just read it, and it conveyed to me understanding, and I accept it. I still never convinced this fellow that I don't have such a thing as an interpretation because he doesn't want to accept what I tell him the Bible plainly says. Now, the book of Revelation, like all of the scriptures, says the word of God is, quote, of no private interpretation. In the leading chapters, the first few chapters of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah said, For I will speak with stammering lips unto his people, and of another people, of another tongue, and he said, it shall be line upon line, and precept upon precept, and here a little, and there a little. That they may go backward, and be snared, and fall, and be taken. Christ quotes the same thing in the 13th chapter of the book of, of uh, Matthew, which is one of the most important parable chapters of the Bible. And the disciples, in about verse 13, ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he said, you don't understand why I speak to them in parables? Because in them is fulfilled the saying of Isaiah, who said, Hearing you shall hear not, and seeing you shall he see not, that they may fall and go backward and be taken, lest they should convert, and at any time I should heal them. As I tried to explain to this gentleman, God did not write and did not cause the writers of his Bible to write the Bible like an ABC 123 primer. Had he done so, if the following scripture were found about five or six times in several books, in several different ways in the New Testament, and it said very clearly, I'm telling you, let's say Jesus Christ might have said this, that you must keep the seventh day Sabbath, the same day I revealed to Moses. It commences on the day you will come to call Friday sunset until Saturday sunset. Anyone who does not keep the Sabbath is guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments. 
The same thing as stabbing your own grandmother to death on a par with murder. If it said over and over and over again in the New Testament, there was no room anywhere for someone to interpret, to twist, to misapprehend, misunderstand, to honestly, honestly misunderstand. Like a few ambiguous scriptures that seem to be cloudy, like Revelation, the first chapter, and we will see in the 20th verse, or not the 20th verse, but in the 10th verse. I'll quote that right now. We'll come to see what this means in just a few moments. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. I can take my Catholic encyclopedia, volumes that stack up to here, bring a great big thick volume, turn to the article Sunday, and show you that that eminent authority of the Roman Catholic Church takes that as one of the three texts of the entire Bible to justify going to church on Sunday. John actually says in the original Greek, I became to be transported into a spiritual state of mind. I came to be in the spirit, in a visionary state of mind. Into, the Greek en, the time of the day of the Lord. But because people in the centuries that went by from the close of the New Testament canon began to refer to Sunday as the Lord's day, there is room here for misunderstanding. You would think a rational, logical person in the fifth grade would understand in the context that the book of Revelation is very clearly saying that John came to be in the spirit into a time in the future called the Lord's day or the day of the Lord. And there are other scriptures that corroborate that. And he heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and so on, and then telling him to write what he sees in a book, the introduction of the book of Revelation. Obviously, it's not saying, I was in a spiritual mood on Sunday. Yet here's the eminent authority of the Roman Catholic Church that claims that's precisely what it means. So you see, God shows in his own word that the Bible has deliberately been written in such a way that men may see and not see, hear and not hear, and not understand, lest they should be converted and be healed, because God is working out a great program, a great plan, and it requires time, and God did not want to require stiff-necked, hard-hearted, cast-iron conscience, egocentric, selfish, vain, jealous, greedy man to make a decision faced with an absolute incontrovertible witness that he couldn't reason around and then rebel and God be forced to kill him on the spot because that's what God would be looking at. And the only way you can understand, as we will read in the book of Revelation later on, people who are actually seeing the most cataclysmic global signs and manifestations of God's power, and they are gnawing their tongues for pain, and yet they are blaspheming the name of God and still refuse to repent of their deeds. To really understand hard-hearted, stiff-necked human nature is very difficult sometimes. Rebellion is its key word. All right, in the first chapter of the book of John, I'm going to skim along and just show you a little bit of the outline of this book. In verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, and of course chapter 1 is basically introductory. It describes Christ. It shows how he is coming with clouds, verse 7, and everybody eventually is going to see him. His announcement, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, said the Lord, which was and is and is to come, the Almighty. Then I, John, verse 9, whom also your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the Isle of Patmos. This is the introductory chapter. He says he turns and he sees Christ depicted in verse 12 through about 16 as having white hair, as white as snow, his garments, his eyes are like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass as they burn in a furnace, his voice is the sound of the foot of Niagara Falls, in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. Well, that would be bizarre and grotesque to see something like that happening. Again, it is in vision. And his countenance is the sun shining in its strength. He fell at his feet as dead, and he said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. That's why I wrote a booklet or a little article brochure entitled, Can God Die? The world says, No, no, Jesus, you weren't dead. 
All the churches, basically, even though many of their ministers don't know this, have paragraphs which define and explain the second chapter of Second Peter, the book of Jude, and other allegations that Jesus was, quote, witnessing to spirits in Tartaru, and they say that Christ, though his body was in the tomb, his soul departed and went to hell for three days and three nights, except they say it was part of two days and one night, not three days and three nights. That's another little problem they have. And that he was witnessing to departed souls in hell or in purgatory. And the churches believe that. And their very vaunted, uh, documented articles, their doctrines and covenants that are on their shelves in their theological seminaries teach their aspiring young ministers that Jesus was, in fact, not dead. I believe that he was. I believe for three days and three nights a second member of the Godhead did not exist, and that Christ was dead. He says right here, I live and was dead. He was dead. He himself said so and am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of, the word hell is the Hades or grave, and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, and here the Bible interprets the Bible, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw represent or are the seven churches. The second and third chapters actually could comprise many books, and in fact do. There are many, many books on the shelf about Daniel and the Revelation, books about the churches of Revelation, books that deal with Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos as separate entities, books that deal with the history of that time. And there are probably hundreds of books on theological library shelves that deal with the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation. There are some points to make in passing, and that is merely to remember that in each case it says that they are to hear what the Spirit says to the church as plural, that the big church in Jerusalem is not represented, the big church in Alexandria is not mentioned, Antioch in Syria is omitted, Thessalonica is omitted, the church in Rome is omitted, the church in Corinth is omitted, and in fact, with the conceivable exception of a couple of three other ones like the letter to Laodicea that is mentioned in one of the other of writings of the Apostle Paul, you learn for the first time in reading through the Bible, if you don't know very much about Asia Minor, uh, the topography and the geology of that, I should say the geography, pardon me, of that time, you hear churches introduced here that you never read of anywhere else in the Bible. Smyrna and Pergamos, there are no apostle or epistles, rather, the Apostle Paul to the church at Smyrna or Pergamos. And so some have erroneously assumed this means a gradual phase or stage through which the church was to pass through all of its time, therefore locking in a predestination concept that if you lived at a particular time in history, you were consigned to be in the era of Thyatira. Or if you live in another time in history, you had to be in the Smyrna or the Pergamum or the Pergamos era. Some of the most important scriptures are verse 26 and 7 of chapter 2. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end. Now let's not interpret it. Let's read it exactly the way it is, like it was a news headline. To him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Question. If you are a Methodist in Sunday school, and your 13-year-olds are there looking at you, and you're going through the book of Revelation, and you're going to expound this, do me a favor and explain to them, when do you get a chance to do that? Since when dear grandmother died, according to Methodist doctrine, she immediately went to heaven, and you don't see your grandmother doing anything about Saddam Hussein, do you? Or Pinochet or somebody else, some dictator in some central or South American country. It was the U.S. military that had to go down there and, and get Noriega. It wasn't a Methodist grandmother. Well, then, at what time in the traditional mainstream fundamentalist doctrine are people given a rod of iron so they can actually come down here to this earth and straighten out the problems? And George Bush apparently was so taken aback when he heard first person from the mouth of the family of the emirs, you know, of Kuwait, of what had happened over there, of rape, of murder, 
of people who had accumulated fine arts, for example, of people's personal possessions like family albums and things that were important, like in your home maybe you have something, a, a piece of your grandmother's china, or you've got a, a picture of the family when your grandfather was still alive, and so on. And they carted off everything of any value, Persian rugs, paintings, porcelain vases, goldware, whatever, to back to Iraq. And then anything that was, you know, important to the family, they just tossed it out the door into the street and set a match to it and just burned it. So here's this pillaging, looting, burning, raping, and of course murder, assassination, house-to-house -house searches, finding frightened hostages going on in Kuwait. If you ever needed a dear old Methodist grandmother to show up with a very power of God and an iron rod in her hand to go in there and break a few shin bones, it is now. But how would you explain that? I would hate to try to explain that to a Methodist Sunday school class because I'd be kicked out before the class is over. I'd explain it that it means what it says and that those who overcome are going to be granted literal co-rootership with Christ and are going to rule like a benevolent, loving, but just and fair and forgiving dictator. They're going to have, on some occasions, to impose the death penalty for murderers and for people who richly deserve it. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. What should happen to Saddam Hussein? You know, you stop to think about it, do we really want him to quietly withdraw from Kuwait? Now, if you think about it geopolitically, that'd be one of the worst things that could happen, because he stays intact. He keeps his million-man army. He keeps the tens of hundreds of millions, or I should say billions, I guess, that he's stolen from Kuwait. He keeps the, the vast tonnages of oil he's already stolen. He keeps all the people that he's taken and carried off up into Iraq. And he's still there. And he's still working not only on stockpiling chemical weapons and biological weapons, but working very hard on nuclear weapons. And there he is, like a carbuncle in the world's side, like a running sore. Oh, yes, there is very great need in the world here and there for the power of God with a rod of iron to break despotic rulers as the vessels of a potter in the shivers. And he said, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. The third chapter, verse 21, he says virtually the very same thing. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Now, chapter 4 is an inset chapter that actually shows a little bit of a setting of heaven. It says that it depicts Christ on a throne, a voice like a trumpet, and he sees the throne, verse 2, and he that sat upon him was like... And he describes diamonds, sapphires, emeralds, and rubies, and in other words, the refracted and reflected light of the dazzling splendor of gorgeous stones like one might see in the British crown jewels. And all of these four and twenty elders, and all of the glories of the great sea of glass like unto crystal, verse 6, and the great living creatures that look like lions and calves and man, men and eagles in verse 7, and how they're all saying, Thou art worthy, verse 11, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. So he has given a vision which sets the scene of heaven itself and says, This is Christ, now enthroned, the great angelic orders of even the archangels doing him great homage, and he is now going to give a little book into the hands of John. It says, chapter 5, in his right hand there was a scroll, a book. The word book is actually scroll in the Hebrew. Written within and on the back side, both sides of the page, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open a book? And then comes the fact that he wept because no man was found worthy to open it. And one of the elders said, Weep not, verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. We don't need to wonder what, what they are, because it says, Which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. He came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. 
When this occurs, the four and twenty elders fall down, and they are symbolized as having harps and golden vials full of odors and the prayers of the saints, as if all of the prayers of thousands of people over thousands of years have been contained in a golden vial and are poured out. And they sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. And again, I will go into great detail in the booklet to show it is the revelation of Jesus Christ to reveal unto his servants that Christ has qualified to be the revelator. I am not the revelator. Pat Robertson is not the revelator, Billy Graham is not the revelator, and John was not the revelator. Christ is. And Christ is the greatest of all the prophets, whose Olivet prophecy is a sequential prophecy of one great event to occur after another. Now, skipping ahead a little bit, in the sixth chapter, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Now, I will cite for you here the notes and the appendices of Bullinger's Companion Bible, as well as many other sources, because sometimes the commentaries go a little bit astray because the churches have begun to teach a very bizarre meaning to the first of these seven seals. The book of Revelation consists of three groups of seven. It is sealed with seven seals. The seventh seal, as we will see, consists of seven trumpet plagues, the last three of which are called three woes. The seventh of the seven trumpet plagues is divided yet into seven, count them, seven, last plagues. And believe it or not, the Battle of Armageddon takes place at about the time of the sixth of the seven last plagues is what is about to happen in the Middle East going to lead directly, very quickly now, to the Battle of Armageddon. According to the United States World News and Re Report, that Pat Robertson said it was. Well, that's interesting. Here's the very first seal to be opened. And as you look, as I said, if you look at Bullinger's notes, you will see how he takes Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, 7, 8, and so on, and just dovetails them together and shows how Christ interprets every one of these. Christ said, You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, but before that he said, Let no man deceive you, for many false Christs and false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And here, when he opens the seals, he hears the noise of thunder. One of the four living creatures says, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Now you might think, a white horse, a white charger. Ah, that must mean Christ. And that's what many churches think, and that's what they teach and preach. And he that sat on him had a bow. Never in all the rest of the Bible is Christ depicted as having a weapon like a bow. Always a sword, a two-edged sword that divides to the marrow of the bone and that cuts both ways. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, if that was the only place to which you could look to understand what it means, you might come up with all sorts of grab bag ideas like the puzzle that is completely out of place and say, I know what that means. That is depicting Christ coming to conquer the world. You'd be happy with that decision you had made. You would also be guilty of doing what it says in the 22nd chapter, of putting your interpretation into the Bible. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, when Jesus was asked what would be the sign of his coming, he gave a sequential answer. And the very first thing he warned about was, Take heed that no man deceive you, verse 4, for many shall come in my name, saying I'm the Christ. Not that they're the Christ, but avowing that he is the Christ, and shall deceive many, and you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, and I'll keep my place there and go back to Revelation, the sixth chapter. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second creature say, Come and see, and there went out another horse that was red. And power was given him and sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. I go back to Matthew 24, and he said, And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, and nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. I go back to Revelation, the sixth chapter, when he had opened the third seal. I heard the third creature say, Come and see, and I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances, a pair of scales, and he's weighing and measuring something. And the four creatures say, A measure of wheat for a penny. That's an awful small little dribble of a few grains of wheat. And three measures of barley for a penny. And be careful, don't spill any of the oil or the wine. And I go back to the book of Revelation. It says, And there shall be famines. And this is depicting scarcity of foodstuffs. 
It's depicting tiny little bits being doled and measured out for a very small sum and saying be very careful with the staples of life, oil and wine. And I go back to the seals and I see that it says, when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and see. And I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and Hades, the grave. Hell is a very poor translation coming from the word Behalion and a pagan goddess of the Nordics called Hell and is not accurate at all. Death and the grave is the preferred translation from the original Greek. Followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, a quarter of humanity, to kill with the sword, with hunger, and with death, and with the creatures of the earth. And I go back to the, the book of Matthew, to Christ's sequential prophecy, and pestilences follows famine, as it naturally and logically does disease epidemics because of starvation and people begin dying from cholera from the pollution of surface water from the interruption of the infrastructure of any civilization in society you go down like I do probably a couple of times a week and stock up on milk eggs and butter or bread and you say honey stop by the store we're out of things for breakfast my refrigerator only carries enough of maybe one half gallon of milk and about a pound and a half or so of butter and a dozen or so eggs at any one given time. When I drive by Brookshire's warehouse over here on the South Loop, and I drive on the road that goes up toward Gresham, and I look at the little gun ports and the little brick uh, gun emplacements and the great big military-like fence with the barbed wire about eight feet high, I realize that the designers of those big food warehouses are expecting at some time that there will be riots and that since nobody has enough stored food to last them for months or years, that when it runs out and suddenly there isn't any more, people are going to be starving, they're going to be desperate, they're going to be looking for food. A time of famine is not something to be blasé about or to kid about or to take very, very lightly. I've been stunned by some of the pictures I've seen in Moscow or Muscovites just standing four abreast around the block, and here are women there. You saw this great big meat counter with two little pieces of meat, and a lady grabs one, another lady tries to grab it out of her hand, and the photographer was right there. Why Gorbachev is about to be toppled, because there are people in the Soviet Union today who go to supermarkets whose shelves are virtually bare, and they fight over what is there, and they simply are not getting the food they desperately need. And apparently our farmers... And our people in the United States are going to be called upon during this very brutal winter, and they're predicting a bad winter in Europe and the Soviet Union. And we're going to be shipping some of our reserves and some of our foodstuffs to help feed a starving populace in the Soviet Union. Now, I won't belabor the, st the statement about famine, except to remind us of the Sub-Sahara, Ethiopia, Eritrea, uh, one of our senators, a congressman who crashed over there trying to alleviate the suffering and the starvation of many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people and that this type of thing continually does occur. So notice the sequential events. Now in chapter 6, and looking at verse 9, when he had opened the fifth seal, he sees in vision the lives of people who have been killed, who are dead, and they cry with a loud voice, just like symbolically Abel's voice called from the blood or, or the dust of the earth for vengeance. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge, judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell in the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren should be killed. Notice they were killed. They are dead. This is symbolism. Should be fulfilled. Why were they killed? It said, because they loved not their lives unto the death. They were killed for the testimony of Christ. They were killed because they were Sabbath keepers, because they observed God's law, because they loved and worshipped Jesus Christ, because they didn't believe in some fake trinity, because they did believe in the duality of God the Father and understood his plan. Notice, I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. Now, for a moment, you're seeing here that the fifth seal follows very quickly on the fallout from a terrible war. Let me make it literal for you. From the time this prophecy was given, and in fact from thousands of years before that time, even back to the days of Semiramis and Nimrod, there have been false Christs and false prophets. Not one of those men, not a single pope in Rome, not a single great false religious leader, 
has ever fulfilled the final, literal, first horseman of the apocalypse. The literal fulfillment of the emplacement of the first horseman of the apocalypse is exactly the same thing as Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, and Matthew 24, 15, that talks about an abomination of desolation standing in the holy place where it ought not. It is the statement of a great false prophet that he has the very powers of God when the occupation of Palestine takes place. It is just after that the warfare breaks out and the martyrdom of saints begins to occur, and that is the fifth of the seven seals. Now the sixth seal is shown in verse 11, 12, here, verse uh, 12, isn't it? I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, apparently a global earthquake of some kind. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. The stars of heaven, like a meteoritic shower, fell into the earth, and the heaven departs. The kings of the earth, verse 15, and mighty men, bondmen, free men, everybody, hide themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains, and say, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, from the, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Six of the seven seals are now open. World War III has already started, drought, famine, disease epidemics, and people being butchered for the testimony of Christ in their hundreds of thousands and maybe millions has already occurred when God interrupts this great war with his heavenly signs, unconverted millions see a brilliant thing just like the sun nearing earth and in terror try to hide their faces. And during that time, as a result of those horrible events, tens of millions being killed in nuclear exchanges, these people in the seventh chapter repent. You read then of the 144,000, 12,000 Jews of Simeon, 12,000 Jews of Judah, 12,000 Jews of Levi. Any church that claims to be the 144,000 had better have 36,000 converted Jews in their membership and anybody that makes that claim is totally out of sequence in biblical prophecy. In addition to those 12,000 of each of the actual tribes of Israel, explained very clearly in the seventh chapter, is a great countless multitude from all other nations where the word of God is gone. People who only understood little bits and fragments of the truth. And as Christ said, the time is going to come when the last shall be first and the first shall be last. I've tried to explain to people, and they misunderstand what I mean, when I tell them doctrine isn't everything. Yes, you need to understand. Yes, you need to know. Yes, Christ said the other comforter will come, and he will lead you into all truth. And those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Yes, it is important to study the Bible, the word of God, to come to understand, to come to know it. But there are going to be people who will know only basically a few essential things. God is there. There he is. There's God. Can you imagine what that concept all by itself in incontrovertible, fabulous, global, universal display of the power of God is going to do to millions of Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and Episcopalians who kind of think there might be a God, but they don't know it down to the depths of their hearts. There he is. And what's that say about you when you're standing there? And here am I. And you're saying, standing all the way to my knees in my filth, my pollution, my corruption, and my sins. And the feeling that is going to come over these people is one of self-abhorrence, of great fear, of a desire to repent. Oh, I didn't, I didn't mean it. I didn't know. I didn't know it would be like this. I didn't understand how great you are. And they're going to fall to their knees and say, save me, forgive me, O God. That's a pretty simple concept. How much doctrine is involved in that process? Why, none at all. There are going to be people who God will convert at that time and pick them up and put his arm around them and say, you're my child and I love you who have never known one thing about third tithe or the Feast of Tabernacles or the 2300 days. 
or the 1190 or the 1335 or some chart working out some intricate detailed prophecy. They will have known none of that. They are the last who are going to go marching into God's kingdom first behind a lot of people still working on their charts, trying to figure out a lot of prophecy. Now look at the events we have in sequence here and get a handle on, and I've got to really hurry, on the way this is developed. All right, now the seventh chapter is an inset because it shows 144,000 and the greater innumerable multitude. Chapter 8, when he had opened the seventh seal, there is silence. And he sees, verse 2, angels given seven trumpets. All right, remember I said, cross top of your page, seven, circle them seven. The seventh seal is divided into seven trumpet plagues. Read these, I won't take time now. The first four are absolutely incredible. It shows the first angel, verse 7, Hail and fire mingled with blood cast upon the earth, and a third part of all the trees are burnt up, and all green grass burnt up on the surface of the earth. Just sets the world virtually on fire. Second angel sounds, a great mountain burning with fire, like a meteor cast into the sea. A third part of the sea becomes blood. A third part of the whales, dolphins, and fish of all kind dies, and third part of all the navies and the merchant marine of the world destroyed. The third angel sounds, and like a great star from heaven, as a lamp fell upon a third part of the rivers and the fountains of waters, the name of the star, meaning an angel, is wormwood, and a third part of the waters became wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. They're poisoned and absolutely not potable, not to be drunk, uh, drunk by anybody. The fourth angel sounded, verse 12, a third part of the sun is smitten. Now there are signs in the heavens. I don't know if it means a third part of the day or a third, or it's only two-thirds as bright as it usually is. And I beheld and heard an angel saying, Whoa, 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 now comes five, six, and seven. We've seen four trumpet plagues, now comes trumpet plague five, six, and seven. And we see a recapitulation in the ninth chapter of the first and second woe of defining who some of the participants are in this great battle. And it said in verse 14, Say to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels that are bound in the great river Euphrates. The tenth chapter is an inset. And it is, of course, the statement toward the end of it, you shall prophesy again before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings, in verse 11. The 11th chapter is a parenthetical inset, the two witnesses, and the city of Jerusalem that is called Sodom and Egypt. The 12th chapter is an inset, the church from its inception in God's plan to the time of its birth, to the time of the birth of Christ, to the persecution and the death of Christ, war in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon. The time when the dragon is to be cast out, verse 9, that has not happened yet, but apparently happens at precisely the time of the very first seal when the great false prophet announces he is God and that Satan himself will enter into him and he will have power to deceive people all over the earth. And again, martyrdom is mentioned, verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Chapter 13 is another inset. You see the first great beast that is the same as the fourth beast of Daniel 7. And you see the second beast that is the lamb-like beast that has two horns like a lamb, but speaks as a dragon, which is the image of the beast or the great false church. Chapter 14, you see the second coming of Christ depicted. Again, an inset chapter. Chapter 15, another inset chapter. Again, setting the scene in heaven, showing those who have gotten the victory over the beast and his image, singing the song of Moses, standing on a translucent sea of glass. Now, chapter 16, we deal with the seventh of the trumpet plagues. And the seventh trumpet plague in chapter 16 is divided into seven angels, each having a vial in which is contained the wrath of God. Now, a quick overview. The first five seals of the book of Revelation comprise the Great Tribulation. The sixth seal is the heavenly signs. The seventh seal comprised of seven trumpet plagues, and the last comprised of seven last plagues consists of the wrath of God or the day of the Lord. The entire span takes place in about three and one-half years. Now we have arrived after all these global cataclysmic events in the 16th chapter to the smash pouring out one after another of the vials of the wrath of God, and we come in verse 13 to our scripture with which we began. 
that describes the gathering of the kings of the earth largely in the Orient and the millions of China and of Japan and perhaps some of Russia and so on to be gathered to a place called Armageddon. Can you see why it is so absolutely ridiculous to say that what is about to happen in the Gulf is going to lead directly in a matter of days, weeks, or months to the Battle of Armageddon, when in fact the literal putting in place of the first seal of the book of Revelation has not yet occurred. World War III has not yet started. The abomination of desolation has not been put in place. There isn't even a temple standing in Jerusalem, so it could be put in place. You look at the sequence of events here, and one of the final great events after the heavenly signs and the sealing of 144,000 and the innumerable multitude, and then these smashing plagues to come upon the head of sinning mankind, is the final great battle of the day of God Almighty, called the Battle of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, in another prophecy, called the Battle of Armageddon. And it makes me wonder, how in the world can anyone who knows anything at all about the book of Revelation make a statement to the news media that this latest possible round of world of war, rather, in the Gulf is going to lead directly to the Battle of Armageddon. It is going to do no such thing. Now, I've said several times that one of the major fallouts from all of this is going to be a terrible bloody nose for Uncle Sam. I think it is pitiable what I've been seeing on television. I'll give you one quick story to conclude. A lot of you probably don't remember the night of the battle of Iron Bottom Bay. You probably don't remember how World War II got started with the United States possessing inferior fighter aircraft, inferior machine guns, an inferior rifle, an inferior torpedo whose exploder didn't work. You probably didn't know that at all times until very late in the war when the Hellcat was, was finally put into action and the uh, F-4U bought Sikorsky Corsair, that the Japanese Zero outmaneuvered and outfought anything the Americans could put against it. But have you heard about the Long Lance? For several years prior to World War II, the United States Navy Department was experimenting with an oxygen-burning torpedo. But because our defense contractors are in private enterprise and working for defense contracts and are interested in a quick buck, the technology was too difficult for them to pursue. It would have taken too big of an investment over too long a period of time to cross over and to make it pay. They abandoned the project. The Japanese did not. So the Japanese entered World War II with what is called the Long Lance, a torpedo that, listen to this, sped under the water, burning oxygen, leaving no wake at 50 nautical miles per hour for more than 35 miles. The American torpedo went at about 18 nautical miles per hour for about 22 nautical miles. It had about half the tonnage of explosives of the Japanese torpedo. In one night, coming down the slot from Savo Island and Bougainville off the coast of Guadalcanal, a Japanese cruiser squadron slipped past the destroyer USS Blue, turned sideways, and unleashed a whole salvo of long lance torpedoes. Down went the Vincennes, down went the Minneapolis, down went the Astoria, and down went the Canberra, a British cruiser, four, three U.S. and one uh, Australian, I should have said, cruiser went to the bottom in moments, and not one Japanese was even injured or ever detected. That was the night the Sullivan family learned all five of their boys who were on the cruiser Astoria had lost their lives. When I read and I hear what I did the other day of the Apache helicopter being put together by the men and women who work in our so-called defense industry, of which about 40% are capable of even getting in the air at any one given time, and that once again, American defense industry is sending young American men and women into battle with inferior equipment. The Russian hind is three times the helicopter gunship the Apache is. It just, I don't know, it, it fills me with outrage, with a feeling of what's the use, uh, of disgust. It is difficult to articulate. 
but we're liable to get a terrible bloody nose in the Gulf. And I wouldn't want to bet that if war breaks out, the United States is going to have some quick, easy victory. I think it's a time for us to pray that God will give peace and that God will somehow see to it that war does not break out, that something very much short of that can be worked out in the Gulf. And not being sitting on the sidelines kind of thinking macho American, let's go over there and, and beat up on Saddam Hussein and, uh, you know, blow up a city and so on, but to pray for peace and to pray that our leaders will make the right decision. Well, I hope you've enjoyed a little bit of a look at biblical prophecy. They've been asking me to interview from a station in Austin when they asked me whether or not the Battle of Armageddon is near to come. I'm going to give them a very different answer than Pat Robertson did.